Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm simultaneously excited and bummed about today's show because, on the one hand, I'm very excited about our guest, who's going to be great. Um, on the other hand, I kind of I, I really hate talking about mass shooting stuff and um uh and I find this whole cycle so incredibly depressing um but at the same time you know to ignore it is also a weird decision and so I decided to uh have uh my friend Steve Gatowski on he is the founder of the reload um he is uh he may not be a household name but he's a household name among any journalists or policy experts who talk about write about or think about seriously the issue of guns and gun control and the gun, unquote, gun lobby in america um and uh he's often his his newsletter and his website the reload is um often the source of major scoops that are both uh there are that are ideologically inconvenient to players on both sides of the aisle um and uh he may, I don't know, I don't want to start some sort of like East Coast, West Coast beef with Charlie Cook, but it's possible he knows more about guns than um, Charlie Cook does, uh, which is saying something. So with that, uh, Steve Gutowski, thank you so much for coming on The Remnant. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. Uh, I will say that if I recall correctly, Charlie Cook's favorite gun to shoot is, is one that I built. So I don't, I don't know what that says, but uh, certainly Charlie's a, a friend and, and very knowledgeable as well, especially on the sort of history, the historical context of the Second Amendment. It's yeah, yeah. Very right. solid on that. So, um, like, so again, one of the misgivings, qualms, weird things I have about all of this is that I'm not a gun guy, right? I mean, I like guns, I shotguns, all that kind of stuff. You know, I got, I got guns in the family, all that kind of stuff. But I'm not like, a wildly passionate pro second amendment person my attitude towards like this like a lot of this stuff is sort of like it's sort of how like i'm intellectually persuaded but for the most part by pro-lifers but i am not like the it, the pro-life cause doesn't run through me the way it does some passionate pro-lifers um similarly i'm pro-death penalty just because i think the arguments i understand the anti-death penalty arguments but i just don't think they're very persuasive and so i often get caught in moments like this feeling sort of like i'm very sympathetic to the just do something side but i'm also in, in part because of people like you and charlie and others uh who i sort of have, have sponged off of i'm very very skeptical that there's any m merit to the things that people are talking about doing 
in the in the, not in the sense that they're like terrible ideas, just that there's not much chance that they're going to do much what they think they're going to do. And so the arguments, and then you get dragged into these sort of weird, let me argue about the stuff I'm comfortable arguing about positions rather than the stuff that actually matters kind of thing. So anyway, I just want to say I, I have misgivings about all of this kind of stuff, and I'm going to play devil's advocate with you a little more than I do with some some people, just because I think it's sure it's useful. So, but we'll, we'll, let's just sort of start with some like 101 stuff. Um, uh, AR-15s, uh, and the AR does not stand for assault rifle, right? Uh, the why are they so popular with mass shooters, and um, why do people who think that they're so satanic kind of misunderstand what's going on with them? Yeah, I mean, I think those are both good questions, right? Uh, certainly you've seen um, a number of very high-profile mass shooters using the AR-15. Uh, you know, people can make off the lists of, of them, and these last two uh, also involved AR-15s as far as we're aware at this point. Um, Although there was some dispute about the the Texas shooting, they may have had a handgun, but I believe it looks like it's uh, AR-15, the latest reporting. Um, but one thing I, I would note on that front is uh, that uh, you know National Institute uh, uh, NIJ, the National Institute of Justice, mm -hmm. did a study on mass shooters, and um, the you know, comprehensive study looked at 50 years of these events. And found that uh, handguns are used in seventy-seven percent uh, of them, and as you know, what what people would term assault weapons, AR-15s, and similar firearms uh, were used in about twenty-three percent. Now, I, I will say that that does mean that they're used. It seem it seems that they're used more often in these sorts of shootings than they are in uh, other kinds of gun violence, uh, you know, murder in particular is rifles are much more rarely used in, uh, murder gun murders overall, um, than they are in mass shootings. Uh, and so there may be something to why that happens. Perhaps there's a copycat element to it. Um, you know, obviously you'll hear gun control advocates argue that it's because the guns are somehow more suited for these events because they're, they let you they're designed to kill lots of people very quickly. That's the argument that you'll hear. Um, to me, uh, and so that's also the argument for why they should be banned, right? Uh, you'll, you'll hear the president said this in his speech that there, there's no other use for these guns, which, but of course that's not, that's not true. There, there's 18 million of these firearms uh, in civilian hands, uh, according to the gun industry, the National Shooting Sports Foundation's estimate. Uh, and there aren't 18 million mass shootings, of course. People use AR-15s for all sorts of different things, whether it's sports shooting, hunting uh, of smaller game, or home defense, of course, is uh, probably the top reason why someone buys an AR-15. Um, they're when you say smaller very modular. Game, that's in part because they're not, there are plenty of hunting rifles that are much more powerful than an AR-15, right. right? It's not a particularly powerful rifle. Yeah, not compared to a hunting rifle. Um, for instance, you would most AR-15s are chambered in 5.56 or 223 Remington, which is um, 
an intermediate sized cartridge for a rifle, uh, much smaller than, you know, a, a, a 308 or a 30-06 that you would, um, you know, more commonly associate with hunting of uh, things like deer or or larger game. You could use AR-15s to hunt, um, you know, smaller coyotes and uh, uh, you know, hogs, things like that, or people cite as, as what they use. Uh, of course, you can chamber an AR-15 in other rounds that are more advantageous for, for hunting, or you could get an AR-10, which is the same basic platform, but sized up uh, to uh, accept the larger rounds. Um, and people do use those for hunting. But uh, but my point is just that it's the most popular rifle in America, and there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, there are a lot of things that people use AR-15s for that are perfectly lawful and reasonable uses of, of, of the gun. Um, and so, uh, you know, certainly it is not only used for killing, but, uh, you know, certainly the, uh, the idea is that they're more useful in these circumstances. And that the, the argument is that's why they get, they show up in these, in these high profile killings. Um, but to me, I, I don't know that I would agree with that because mo- most of these killings involve somebody murdering people who are completely um, defenseless and have it doesn't really matter what kind of gun you're using in a circumstance like that where you're you know point blank shooting innocent children really you know it, like the it doesn't matter what gun you're you're going to use in a such situation like that especially in this case where it seems like he had 40 40 minutes to an hour yeah. left alone inside of that school um i mean I, what we'll get to that in a little be, bit yeah yeah there's not going to, it's not the AR 15 that led to the, the, the carnage in this situation. So, um, just to either push back or clarification a little bit on that, that NIJ study, my recollection, I haven't looked at this stuff recently, but I used to look at criminal justice stuff, stats quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that, you know, any mass killing is bad, right? You know, it was mm-hmm. evil or whatever. And, it is an obligation of the state at one level of government or another to do what they can to prevent them and to punish people involved in them. All that said, my recollection, tell me if I get this wrong, my recollection is that it's a bit of a method, me- methodological illusion because the mass shootings, which are just simply defined as what three or more or five or more, depending on who's doing the study, of people killed, the ones with handguns tend to be disproportionately, not exclusively and, you know, all that, but like tend to be basically gang related kind of things where sometimes innocent bystanders are killed, but there is some sort of beef, you know, kind of thing going on. It is not like with this twisted guy in Uvalde, Texas, who just said, I'm going to go shoot up a school, um, you know, which is a, different motivation right i mean there is what i'm saying is is that like a lot of things that are called mass shootings are are not the kind of mass shootings that terrify normal families i don't say normal families because there are a lot of normal families who are terrified by other kinds of mass shootings um but the kind of things that make get all the headlines with with these kinds of totally random school shootings and that kind of thing uh ar-15s or or similar weapons and long guns in general just seem to be used much more for that because it's it's hu- it's hunting total strangers rather than um, 
the the sort of handgun related ones, which tend to disproportionately be, they may escalate to include a lot of a lot of innocent bystanders and whatnot. But originally, there is some sort of more sort of crime related beef going on. Do I have that wrong? Uh, well, two things there. The, that NIJ study is only looking at events where four or more people were killed in a public setting by a single, mm-hmm. but well, by, uh, that were not gang related or related okay, to so other they excluded crimes. all the gang related stuff. Yes. So, okay. so just on that point, they did exclude the, the sorts of, uh, you know, gang related or criminal related, mm-hmm. uh, mass shootings that can happen. Um, and so, so yeah. And, uh, Additionally, obviously, you've seen shootings like uh, Virginia Tech, where yeah. I believe it was 35 people were, were killed, and that was uh, he he used handguns in that situation. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to try and uh, like deny that AR-15s have been sure. used in in some of these very high-profile shootings because it's obviously true. Um, uh, all I'm pointing out there is that they that people have a cons- this impression that AR-15s are the most common firearm used in these sorts of uh mass shootings and and that's just uh, i mean it's just not true uh they're used in they've been used in very high profile ones and they may have been something that has uh that plays into why they are used by some of these shooters uh the perception uh, created around them uh, may, may be driving why some people choose the ar-15 over other firearms um, for for these sorts of attacks, um, okay, so I just wanted to be clear that it's not the no. That's totally fair. That's, that's why you're here. I mean, so but there, I, but I do think uh, you had a there is a good point there uh, about language and definitions because it is a very difficult part of this whole conversation because once when, when I say mass shooting, that is going to mean different things to different people right. now, uh, especially over the last five years because. Uh, traditionally the definition was taken from the definition for mass murder, mm-hmm. which the FBI is, has as, um, four or more people killed in, uh, you know, a single incident basically. Uh, and so a mass shooting was a mass murder committed with, with a gun. But in recent years, the media has adopted a different definition that was, uh, um, forwarded by uh, gun control advocates, which broadened that definition to, four or more people shot in a single incident and which not that there's anything inherently wrong with tracking those kinds of shootings, which uh, are obviously still bad and problematic uh, and something that needs to be addressed and something needs to be uh, looked at as to how to fix, but it certainly does conflate a lot of different kinds of shootings together. Mm -hmm. um, Like you're talking about there with, uh, so if you just count every, shooting that has four more people injured in it, uh, regardless of, uh, the circumstance or, um, you know, whether it was criminally, uh, involved, there was some sort of additional crime involved in, in why it happened. You're going to end up, uh, one, you're going to give the impression that something like this elementary school shooting happens every day in this country, which frankly, uh, I think you could fairly assume is the impression that some people are trying to give, um, even though it's not accurate. Um, and, and you're going to have a much harder time giving answers for how you fix this problem because what happened uh, at Robin Elementary School is different from the gang shooting that 
you know, happened uh, in, uh, there's one in Sacramento where a lot of people were, mm. were shot and killed uh, during a gang altercation at, you know, outside of a nightclub. That's a different uh, problem with different solutions than uh, Sandy Hook or Rob Elementary. Um, all right. So let's, let's just do a couple other low hanging fruit informational things. Um, the, um, one of the things you often hear about is the need to ban or regulate, uh, the amount of ammo that these weapons can hold. What is like, you know, um, when you talk about, first of all, like, what is the need to have a high capacity clip for legitimate purposes? Um, and, um, you know, and this is one of these things where there's also the problem of like, even if you agreed it's a problem, what, what is in the realm of the possibility that could be done to, 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 to make these things illegal or regulate them given the current state of the technology? Right. Yeah. Those are two very good questions. Right. Uh, because one of, one of the major pushes is to regulate, uh, or ban magazines that hold more than, well, it's a different number depending on who you ask and which state you look at. High capacity. Some states it's things, 15. Right. Yeah. High. I mean, this is another thing where you're getting into terminology of right. that's you know, in dispute. What does high capacity mean? Most guns in most parts of the country are sold standard with uh, you know, your your full size handguns almost certainly going to come with a 17 round or more uh, magazine capacity. Most rifles that uh, are magazine fed will come with 30 round magazines standard in the vast majority of the country. Uh, and so these states that have limits are outliers. Now they're, you know, then they're the kind of states you would imagine, you know, California, Maryland, New York, New Jersey. Um, and and they have uh, Colorado has one as well, uh, but uh, they they all differ on what the number should be, whether it's mm -hmm. fifteen or ten. Uh, the president has put forward three rounds as his solution. You know, you've, you might probably heard him talk about this in the past uh, because he he focuses most of his gun rhetoric around hunting, and so you, mm -hmm. you'll hear commonly the claim that you know why do you need more than three rounds if you're if you're if you need 30 rounds to go hunting, you're a bad shot or whatever, you know, and he uses the, the you know, deer don't wear Kevlar line, but you know, obviously hunting is not the primary, it is not the only reason why people own firearms and is no longer the primary reason that people own firearms in the United States. And so higher capacity magazines uh, mean you have a better likelihood of surviving a self-defense shooting mm -hmm. because, uh, Reloading a magazine when your life is under threat is is going to make uh, it more likely that you're not going to survive that encounter. This is why you see in every state that has magazine capacity laws that police officers are always exempted from these restrictions. And so the, I think the question there is, uh, well, why are police exempted? Mm -hmm. Because it's a risk to their safety to have uh, to be forced to use a lower capacity magazine than what is designed for the gun. Um, so now, you know, certain, certain points you get to, uh, why, questions why, about, why do you need for an AK, like, why do you need for an AR, mm -hmm. you know, 15 or, or, um, yeah, 30 rounds, 30, you know, a 30 round magazine. I mean, other than, I mean, I, right. I understand it for recreational shooting, it's more fun to do it that way, but like, like, 
beyond that, I mean, what what is the what is the best case argument for it? Uh, is it the self protection thing? Yeah, I mean, as far as like if you're if you're trying to discuss needs, um, as opposed to you know why liberties, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. liberties or rights, uh, yeah. you know the 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 number one need would be uh, you know self protection in an incident where you're um, especially with multiple um, assailants would be uh, you know one of the examples of when you might need more than 10 or 15 rounds. But I mean, honestly, if you go look at police shooting encounters and you look at the round counts that are involved there, uh, they're, they're usually well beyond 15 rounds um, are, are fired in a, in an encounter where police have to exchange gunfire with somebody else. Uh, so like when you're in a situation, when you're in a gunfight, like uh, you're probably going to shoot more rounds than you might think right it's not like a movie and everyone's john wick right let me just do a devil's advocate Mm -hmm. push back a little bit on that like police have all sorts of things at their disposal that we want police to have because they're police right Mm -hmm. similarly military has all sorts they're you know they're the exceptions to all sorts of rules about things from qualified immunity on down right and um, how many, I mean, like if, if, you know, I just listen to this and I think about like where my friends on the other side of a lot of these arguments would come from, you know, when you describe about the, 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 the shot fired count for, for police exchanges, how many of those, what are the, what is the shot fired count in, in the civilian realm, you know, for self-protection? I mean, it seems to me that most people, I'm just guessing this. If if you got other data, I'm open to it. But like, someone comes and tries to break into my house, I f- I shoot a bullet through the front window at them, right? Or um, a couple warning shots in the air. The idea that it's going to be an extended firefight strikes me as like implausible, and also just simply very very rare. Um, mm-hmm. So is if if, if using the police as the example where the people firing back at the police have a much different incentive structure because they know if, if they don't get away or win, they're going to jail or something, then, um, uh, well, you know, the average homeowner trying to protect his home. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the incentive structure for people, anyone engaged in any kind of gunfighter is kind of the same thing, which is like to, to survive. Right. But my point is how, how but, often are these gunfights? I mean, how often are yeah. gunfights no, like that? that nothing to do with police occur. Yeah, I get what you're saying, um, and and I don't I don't think the claim would be that uh, the most likely situation is you're going to need 30 rounds in a self defense encounter. That's that's not the case. In fact, the most likely situation you're going to face in a self defense encounter with a firearm is that you'll never have to fire a single shot at all. Mm-hmm. But of course, that doesn't really mean that we should outlaw uh, that we should mandate all guns have no ammunition, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The, the, the reality is that there are situations where you may need more than 10 or 15 rounds to defend yourself. Uh, And uh, you know, reloading is something that it will put you at a disadvantage in a self-defense situation. I think that's just reality. It's not the idea that every gunfight that happens or every self-defense encounter that somebody gets into is going to require 30 or more rounds to uh to win or to survive the idea is that it there are situations where that will be the case 
Um, I mean, it's the same thing for police, right? The, the police don't go in to any encounter thinking they're going to have to shoot a hundred rounds. Um, but certainly they will get into encounters where that is what happens. Sure. But also, you know, police, it's police will encounter, encounter situations with shooting in ways that, um, the probability of them encountering shooting is orders of magnitude higher in the same way the probability of firemen encountering fires is orders of magnitude higher than for an average citizen. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, sure. Um, all right. So similar, and I understand the discomfort about talking about the need part because a big part of the argument for about gun rights is it doesn't matter what the reasons are. Right. I mean, it's like no one ever says you don't need to make that kind of speech or you don't need to worship that kind of God. That's not the right question. I, and I, I get that, but I'm just trying to get at the way people are talking about this stuff these days. Um, yeah. And I, I would say too, that like, um, I, I don't know that there's conclusive evidence that magazine bans have a significant effect on, um, uh, you know, gun violence in America. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the brand corporation has done a review of studies on all of these questions uh, about, you know, different policy types and their outcomes and what, what studies show. Uh, and they, they did they you know, in, in their category on assault bans and magazine limits there, they didn't find any studies that had conclusive evidence that they had an impact on violent crime or mass shootings. So, uh, you know, uh, certainly we can go through from, a you know, an, an intellectual point of view and logic through, you know, what the outcomes of these things could be one way or the other. Um, but uh, I don't think that there's strong scientific uh, evidence to back up the idea that there is uh, a positive effect of these sorts of laws. I mean, you can, uh, you know, there will be studies on either way, uh, oftentimes that, that will show one thing or another, uh, but a lot of them are not very rigorous uh, studies in terms of their methodology, they weren't even included in this Rand Corporation uh, review. Uh, and Rand, Rand Corporation is not, uh, you know, a, no, it's, it's not a pro-gun. Right. Um, and also, uh, I mean, like, uh, this is one that Charlie often makes is that with 3D printing, even if you ban cartridges, the people who really wanted to have mm -hmm. cartridges can get, I mean, you can, you can, you can, like, the idea that you're going to get rid of black market or off, you know, off books high capacity not cartridges uh, magazines magazines it just is, is very unlikely right i mean that's yeah so. and i mean even even before you get to 3d printing i mean not all a magazine is right is a spring in a metal box that's mm -hmm. what a magazine is and so what you're doing with a magazine limit is just saying that your spring can't be this long mm -hmm. that that's, that's uh, easy to can't do be it this yourself short. in your garage yeah. Right? yeah but i mean even even with all of that stuff i think that's all ancillary because the problem you face is there's probably got there's got to be hundreds of millions mm -hmm. at the very low end uh, of magazines that hold more than 10 rounds mm -hmm. in, in the United States right now. And they're not serialized. You know, it's already going to be an impossible test to try and confiscate all of just AR-15s in the country, just one kind of rifle, right. which are serialized and um uh you know are large objects that are more difficult to hide it, it's and then it's magnitudes of effort harder to confiscate all of the magazines that hold more than 10 rounds because or 15 rounds 
uh, because they're not serialized and there's way more of them and they're small uh, pieces of, of equipment, you know, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a realistic policy to say that we, we need to, that we can get rid of these, these devices. I mean, you can, again, look at the New York shooting. They had an assault weapons ban. He bought a New York illegal AR-15. And then he had um, access to 30-round magazines. And he illegally modified his gun to be able to accept them. Uh, you know, So there's certainly pra- very practical limits to these sort of policies anyway, even, even if you did come down on the side of, well, maybe we should just limit how many rounds a magazine can hold because maybe that would have some impact on mass shootings. Uh, although again, you know, look at the Texas elementary school shooting. What we're learning now is that it was, he was in there for 40 minutes to an hour. Yeah. It, yeah. it takes a, a couple of seconds to switch magazines Yeah, when you're against defenseless children. I, you know, it's just, when you think through these policies, it's, it gets harder and harder to justify how they would have, how they would work and, and whether they'd have an effect. So my, you know, my view on some of this stuff in terms of how do you prevent these things is to stop thinking about guns as the problem. And I don't mean that to say that there aren't things you can do about guns. I, I personally cannot get too worked up about raising the, the purchase age from 18 to 21 for, for certain weapons. Um, I'm not, I, I understand the arguments against it and, and, all that but it just it, it does not fill me with like um and you know with with don't tread on me you know anger either um and i'm very much in favor of of the red flag laws if properly you know instituted but you know the, i get why people say when they say oh look how many more guns we have than switzerland or and switzerland has a lot of guns never mind other european countries and they say, and they sort of anthropomorphize, or you know, uh, give magical properties to guns that the guns are the things that are causing all of these things. And and the reality is, is that we have people that want to use guns in evil ways. And um, given where we are in with the number of guns that are already exist, and as you put it, and as you mentioned, the number of magazines that already exist, the idea that you are going to do anything but but have a symbolic effort about getting the guns out of the bad guy's hands it strikes me as just unpersuasive even if you could persuade me that it's that on the merits it's worth doing and could pass constitutional muster but things like i mean like explain this to me what is the um what is the best argument for an 18 year old who just turns 18 to go into a gun shop and buy body armor like what do, what do you need body armor for if you're not a cop um, you're not in the military, um, you know, uh, and you're not in some sort of security business of, of some, of, of a very high order. Um, and shouldn't something like that be considered a potential red flag where you're just like, Hey, wait a second, you know, what do you need this for? You know, can I talk to your mom or whatever it is? I don't know. But like, it just, that strikes me as a sort of a strange thing, you know, particularly in the Buffalo shooters case to like go get the kind of stuff that allows you to, because part of the reason why this is so important, it seems to me, and I'll let you answer in full, but um, is we constantly hear from people, what we need are more good guys with guns, right? If there was a good guy with a gun to shoot back, everything would be okay. And it's, 
very often it is an incredibly glib pandering answer, it seems to me, because we had a good guy with a gun who didn't fire back in Uvalde, Texas, apparently. And we had a good, definitely a good guy who fired back at the supermarket in Buffalo, but he was shooting at a dude with body armor. And so he ended up getting killed for his efforts, trying to do the right thing. So like, you know, the, the good guy with a gun thing seems like a way to get out of an awkward press interview increasingly in some of these cases than, and less of a serious public policy answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's obviously a couple of things to unpack there, but, um, but one, I, I guess I should note that uh, the Buffalo shooter did have uh, some sort of uh, a body armor from what we know, but it turns out that the uh, Uvalde shooter was wearing a, he was wearing what's called a plate carrier, which is a, a form of body armor where you insert ceramic uh, plates, uh, okay. Kevlar plates, but he didn't actually have any plates. So he, he wasn't actually wearing, anything that would protect him from anything. Okay. Um, although it probably looked that way to people on the scene, certainly. There have been um, other mass shooters who had body armor though, right? I mean, I, there have been, uh, there, there have like been in that, in that NIJ study, there were, I think two incidents where somebody was wearing body armor. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, it's not something that happens commonly in these events, but it, do, it has happened certainly. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, there's a, there's certainly a question as to, uh, you know, why, why, are, why is this legal for people to own? Um, I think obviously uh, the, the counter to that the counter position uh, is, is that it's a purely defensive um, uh, product. It, it, you can't, obviously when you, you can use it in consultation with firearms to attack people. Uh, and I, you know, I, so you understand why, why the point about, why they shouldn't, why we should more highly regulate them or ban them or, or whatever the case might be. But the counter argument is that they, you can't hurt anyone with a with body armor. All it does is protect the person wearing it. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying ban body armor. I'm just like if if I saw if some sketchy 18 year old came in to my shop and mm-hmm. and was like, "Give me those three rifles and some body armor." Yeah. You know, I, 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 I feel like there's a little lack. Yeah. I mean, it's not a common thing for people to own. And even yeah. in the gun community, most people don't own body armor. Yeah. So I can certainly understand what you mean as far as like why that would throw a red flag for, for people. It's just a question of like, how do you handle that regulatory uh, in a regulatory capacity? And, um, uh, you know, it's an open question. I think people would have to wrestle through what they would want to do about it. Does buying body armor and a gun make you um uh, is that a warning sign that you're going to carry out some attack because uh, i don't i don't know that it is uh necessarily yeah, I don't know that it is either. Like, but uh but certainly it you know yeah if if he wasn't wearing body armor the buffalo shooter may have you know the, the off-duty or the retired police officer may have been able to stop him uh and you know, we'll sadly never know but but uh you know I, I understand obviously why people would would look at that because it is on it's very unusual it's not like, like ar-15s are not unusual they're they're popular firearms and that's probably another reason why they show up in these things it's the most popular firearm in the country so it's kind of like if somebody you know used a honda civic to it to run somebody over you know it wouldn't be is it, or that honda civics are more often involved in car crashes it's probably not because people are who buy them are prone to be to to get involved in car crashes probably just because they're very popular mm-hmm. is part of 
part of the explanation, perhaps. But uh, we wear as body armor is not a common thing. It's not that popular. Uh, but um, and then uh, uh, the, you know the the other. Uh, but there's a second part to your question, though, beyond the, beyond the body armor. Well, it was uh, um, whether or not it should be part of like a red flag thing, or and then the other part of it was what well, I can't remember either now. I think 18 to 21 year olds was. Oh yeah, was, moving, uh, moving the, the gun purchase age from 18 to 21. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's something that Florida did after Parkland. Uh, I think you're likely to see it happen in California, and it, it's actually I, I think it's possible you could see it in Texas. I mean, Florida and Texas are not that dissimilar in their mm -hmm. politics, and this is one of the worst mass shootings in the history of the country, obviously. Um, so there's going to be a lot of, um, pressure to, uh, enact some sort of changes. Uh, and the shooter there in Texas was 18 years old. So you could see <clears throat> that sort of policy adopted even in Texas because it was adopted in Florida in 2018. Um, but I get the counter argument there is, um, is obviously has to do with adulthood of what, what you consider the age of, um, adulthood to be and the the rights that come along with that. Certainly we have restricted handguns uh, for a long time at the federal level for purchase by uh, people under the age of 21. So it's obviously not an unheard of restriction. Um, although certainly you're getting closer and closer to just an outright ban on all firearm ownership by adults between the ages of 18 and 20, um, which carries its own uh, issues and you actually just saw that exact type of um, restriction on assault weapons, uh, so-called assault weapons, AR-15s and similar firearms um, for 18 and 18 to 20 year olds in California, struck down by a federal court uh, as essentially age discrimination. Which I mean, it is basically exactly what it is. But yeah, no, but, I, I don't uh, dispute that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it, but I, I, I so. Uh, that would be the counter is that when yeah. you turn 18, you're supposed to be a legal adult. And so, um, uh, but we don't let people drink booze until they turn. Yeah. 21 I mean, that, that's, that's, that's why, and that's why it too. remains yeah. like a, an open debate. Like yeah. what we still, we clearly have, uh, some very, uh, contradicting positions as a country on when adulthood actually sets in because, you know, you can be, you can vote and be drafted at 18, but, you can't drink or buy a handgun legally. Yeah. I don't know where everyone should come down on that. Uh, certainly you can, obviously you can look at the logic of it as a lot of these mass shooters are, are young men um, who use AR-15s. Uh, although like I pointed out earlier, that's not the majority mm -hmm. uh, of the weapons used. Uh, so uh, it's so, an open question, honestly. I, I, where, where do people come down on what the age of adulthood should be and where like what what rights should be uh, bestowed on people at that point. So one of the things you hear after every one of these things, I mean, I, I just, I so resent how familiar these things feel now, you know? Um, uh, but one of the things you always hear, sort of like good guy with a gun. Um, oh, that was your other point, by the way, that I wanted to just mention. You, okay, you, well, yeah, you the good guy with the gun. Um, yeah. There was, yeah, there were, there was one in Buffalo. There were 
Uh, there was supposedly there was exchange of fire with police before this shooter in Texas went into the school. Mm-hmm. Although there's some conflicting reports about yeah, that. Yeah, some stuff now. broke this morning that maybe that's not true. So I don't. Yeah, so I'm not sure uh, about that. But uh, you know, I, I think this goes back to the idea that um, the people want to offer easy solutions in the wake of these attacks, uh, and so you get a lot of rhetoric on either side that just says. Obviously, the solution is this policy that I want to do, whether it's an assault weapons ban um, or whether it's uh, arming teachers or putting police in schools or doing the single entry uh, doors is one that's been talked about a lot now. Uh, Not that any of the, you know, and and you can debate the merits of each of those policies, but I think the reality is that none of them are going to be a panacea and you're not going to have an easy switch to solve this problem, unfortunately. Um, and, and not to say that there's nothing that can be done or nothing that can improve the odds of stopping something like this. But what we often hear is just, uh, you know, j- j- if only there was uh, just put someone armed there, that'll solve the problem every time shooters only target soft targets, uh, which might be generally true. But clearly we've seen in a number of s- situations that that isn't a 100 percent deterrent. Right. Um, I mean, th- this is my problem. Pl- attack police stations. You know, this is sort of where I wanted to go with this because, like, this is one of my problems with all of this. Is I remember in two thousand, you know, when you were probably in high school or grade school or something. Um, uh, I remember George Stephanopoulos when he was a brand new pundit on the ABC Sunday Show. There had been a horrible church shooting in Texas. And he was saying how uh, George W. Bush as governor had vetoed a bill that would have prevented people from being allowed to bring firearms to church. And, um, and he thought this could be a really bad thing for Bush in the election. And I just remember thinking, um, and I don't mean to pick on Stephanopoulos because this, com- this is a common form of argumentation. The upshot of which is if only the shooter had been told it's against the law to bring a gun to church, he would not have murdered a dozen people in cold blood, right? I mean, right. the whole point is, is like you have some of these superficially, you know, valid laws in theory that if you're, but if we think about it for two seconds, if you're willing to, if you're willing to murder small children or willing to murder people at church, um, the idea that you're going to obey the no guns allowed sign strikes me as implausible. Right. And so like so many of the things that when people talk about, we need new gun laws, um, uh, they make it sound as if new gun laws would deter people from doing things that we have the most draconian laws on the books against, namely first degree murder. Um, that said, you know, not everybody makes those kinds of arguments and there's, um, one of the things you always hear is one side says we need new laws and the other side says, no, we need to enforce existing laws. Um, I'm very much on the enforce existing laws thing for all sorts of reasons, particularly for the non mass shooter, just urban crime thing. If there the reports of people using threatening people, menacing people with firearms, being caught with firearms and being just sort of let go because we're in this anti-incarceration world these days strikes me as just so incredibly dumb 
uh, for people who want to actually advance the cause of, of limiting gun crimes. But where do you come down on this? How many times have a as a mass shooter, you know, if 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 actually broken the law in terms of the weapon, they, you know, everything short of the actual murder. Like when, mm. how often is it that they're breaking the law by having the gun? Have they bought an illegal gun, or have the guns always been bought legally? What laws would have prevented? You know, again, there's a lot of diversity of mass shooters, but what what if what laws have properly enforced? Is it, you know, the waiting period stuff? Is that not properly enforced? How do you just sort of score all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing about, uh, these mass shooting events is that they're each, uh, they may share a, a number of similarities. Um, but they're each unique events that uh, generally have different reasons for why, uh, they could have been prevented or how they were allowed to happen. Um, you know, most of the time the guns are purchased legally, although they're purchased legally in some cases when they should not have been able to be purchased legally. Uh, the Sutherland Springs shooter, for instance, uh, was, uh, had a, a long criminal history during his time in the air force, but which disqualified him from owning firearms. Uh, so it was, it was, yeah, it was illegal for him to buy the guns, but he passed the background check. Mm-hmm. So the store that sold him the guns didn't know right. that it was illegal um, because the Air Force hadn't transferred the the records. Uh, you had um, uh, you, you've had situations like that in, in the past, uh, and then you've had a lot of situations where uh, you know your colleague at, at the dispatch there, uh, David French, uh, points out a red flag law could have been used. Mm-hmm. Uh, because oftentimes there are warning signs that um, perhaps do not raise rise to the level of involuntarily uh, involuntary commitment, which mm-hmm. would make someone federally prohibited from owning guns, but may rise to the point where somebody can be, you know, subject to a red flag order, which would at least temporarily prevent them from, uh, you know, uh, buying or, or owning guns. Uh, that certainly seems to be the case in the Buffalo shooting where he was taken. For, he had made threats about uh, wanting to kill people and himself, and he was taken for evaluation, but wasn't red flagged. Although that's obviously the sort of goes to one of the points about like, uh, uh, it's not clear that even if you have a law that should prevent someone from legally obtaining a gun, that they won't carry out an attack like this anyway, because they're obviously. Uh, if you're going to murder a lot of people, you are well aware that that's not illegal. I mean, that's not, that's not something that you can do legally. And so you're very much willing to break the law to accomplish that goal. Um, You know, with a school shooting, obviously it's, even if you bought your guns legally, like this uh, Texas shooter did, it's not legal to bring a gun on a school campus under federal law. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then of course it's not, again, not legal to murder a a bunch of people. So, you know, you get, (laughs) It's it is hard to talk about because you can point out ways in which it would have perhaps been illegal. We could have made it illegal for them to obtain a gun, like the Parkland shooter. If he had been convicted of domestic violence, which he had been, the police had been called on him for several incidents of domestic violence, but he was never prosecuted for uh, any of those incidents. Um, 
you know, the, the FBI had uh, the, the Pulse nightclub shooter on a watch list, but never pursued any charges against him. Uh, the Sandy Hook so shooter certainly had what I would think are a number of, like, forget red flag laws, just red flags that maybe yeah. this guy should not. Even without red flag laws, often these guys have done things which should have, if someone had followed through on the consequences for them, would have made it illegal for them to buy the gun. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, the domestic violence uh, misdemeanors, the conviction of domestic violence misdemeanor makes you a prohibited person under federal law. Uh, and a lot of these shooters end up having domestic violence histories, um, but are not always followed through. Of course, um, you get into the question of like the you know enforcement um, and and you know of course extremely draconian enforcement of uh, every warning sign or red flag is going to result in uh, negative outcomes for a lot of people who aren't going to end up being mass shooters. These are rare events still, uh, as much as we want them to be to never happen, and so you have to deal with the trade offs of all of these sorts of policies. Um, and it's not a guarantee that any of them will at, in the end stop somebody who's committed to doing something like this. Uh, I still believe that they, you know, properly uh, crafted and enforced gun laws can reduce the likelihood of these events happening and make it much more difficult. I don't see any reason why you wouldn't want to make it difficult for somebody who has the inclination to murder a lot of people to obtain a gun, obviously. Uh, it's just never, none of this stuff is going to be a guarantee, uh, is I guess the, the ultimate point. So, I mean, obviously you're a Second Amendment guy, right? I mean, and um, uh, at the same time, like, you're a decent guy. You got to hate these mass shootings. I mean, there's just, there's just no way that, you know, and, and so what goes like, what goes through your head of, you know, and I have ideas out. You're not a social psychiatrist. You're not, you know, you know, you're not uh, um, a sociologist. You're a guy who specializes in the gun industry and, and all of these things. But like, what goes through your head about, something either in the state or local level that could be done in the realm of firearms that you think has a, has a chance of getting a bipartisan and large enough bipartisan consensus to pass um, that on net would do good without stepping on the toes to fundamental rights um, mm -hmm. and or being just simply performative BS like what like is there if you're made president of the United States or the president of the United States calls you and says, I will do one thing that you recommend I do, um, to help me fix this problem. What, like what goes through your head? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, as I said before, there's no one thing that's going to fix everything, but right. I'm not, I'm not asking for a silver bullet, so to speak. Right. Um, yeah. I'm asking just for like something that right. helps. Yeah. The, what, what can we do that would help that, uh, the things that I would recommend are um, uh, one uh, reforms to the mental health system is important. I mean, that's, but that's hard, right? It's, it's a complex thing. Like you're not, I don't know that you're going to fix that in one bill or, or that I have the expertise to say exactly what needs to be fixed there, but something to uh, which doesn't 
uh, which can um, recognize when somebody is in a crisis state and actually provide them help. Um, uh, you know, that coupled with a properly um, written red red flag law that would uh, address a lot of the concerns that uh, gun rights supporters have for those bills. I mean, the NRA supports the concept of a red flag law, but has never supported one in practice because there are objections to the scope of who can initiate the uh, the orders, uh, you know, who can request them, uh, which I think are legitimate concerns because of potential abuse and then punishments for people who uh, would abuse the the system, uh, you know, a red, a red flag system, uh, you know, on, on par with other punishments for filing false reports against people. Um, and then, um, you know, make sure that the, the evidentiary standard is, is high enough uh, for dealing with a constitutional right, like, uh, you know, owning firearms, uh, and then deal with, you know, coupling that with the health, mental health reforms, because if all you're doing is taking away someone's firearms during a red flag order, that that doesn't seem like a good enough solution because what you're saying is that this person is too dangerous, uh, too much of a threat to themselves or others to own firearms, but that's, but there's no other thing we're going to do. After 90 days, you just go back to where you were, right? You know, or whatever. And and so that's, that's what, you know, what, what I would, uh, uh, put forward. I mean, training for police on how to use those the c- resources they already have in these situations. There's a Grassley has a bill about um, expanding this the Secret Services Threat Assessment Center to help schools identify uh, potential uh, uh, students in crisis and and who may uh, you know commit acts of violence. Uh, but again, of course, all of these things have uh, trade offs. You know, I mean, putting more. Uh, police in schools could p- certainly prevent mass shootings. There have been school resource officers who have prevented mass shootings. Uh, you know, there was one in in Illinois a few years ago uh, where that was the case. But obviously, putting police in schools brings a lot of other issues with it. Um, you know, overcriminalization and so forth. <laughs> These all have trade offs. Uh, but those are the things that you know, strength, strengthening school design to be better resist uh resistant to uh, somebody getting inside of it again not a total solution because they can there have been incidents where you the, someone has waited until students come out of the school to shoot at them it, there's no perfect solution for any of this but a combination of these things uh, i think could improve uh you know our our efforts to stop the next one of these horrible attacks so uh you mentioned the nra and i i, I want to let you get away before we sort of do a little bit on the politics on this and um um, again, one of, another one of my peeves about these conversations is we heard it from Biden twice now. We hear it from a lot of people. I'll just, I don't have to run through lists where people say the only thing that's stopping us from fixing these laws and getting rid of these things is the quote unquote gun lobby. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there is a gun lobby, right? But, uh, the power of the gun lobby, it seems to me is entirely derived from the fact that there are millions of gun owners in the United States who are voters and um, what, and you can think they're wrong or right. That's not my point. My side just matter as a matter of political reality, but the reason why you have 
Democrats and others talk about the gun lobby is because they want, they frame it as if this is some small cabal of people who are defying the public will, right? It's a very populist form of argumentation. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like Bernie Sanders talking about millionaires and billionaires, a handful of millionaires and billionaires stopping us from having socialized medicine. When in reality, they're just like tens of millions of voters who don't want those policies. And I always like to ask people, like, what if I talked about abortion that way? Where I said, you know, it's just this small group, this abortion lobby, which controls the Democrats. And most people don't actually agree with what the abortion lobby wants to do. You know, Planned Parenthood, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of there's just as much, if not more truth to that. If you look at polls about where Americans are on abortion than where they are on guns. Um, and so. It seems to me that the gun lobby, particularly the NRA, has never, it's weird, it has never been weaker, but support among voters for basic Second Amendment rights has never been stronger. Do I have that wrong? Like, what is the role of the gun lobby at this point, so to speak, um, you know, quote unquote, gun lobby um, in all of this? Are they, are they driving the debate or are they just following the debate? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think you made a lot of very solid points there. A lot of, a lot of the, a lot of it, what I would very much agree with. Uh, oh, I will say it's there's this little bit of uh, humor in the fact that there there is a literal gun lobby. Uh, the the gun industry has a trade group called the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh-huh. which lobbies for their interests. Um, but uh, everyone always calls the NRA the gun lobby, right? Uh, I always found that kind of. Fascinating, but uh, that is obviously beside the point here. And the point is that while the NRA does have and continues to have significant influence in the gun debate, uh, it's their influence comes from the fact that they have millions of people who are willing to uh, pay them money to be a part of the organization. They have you know upwards of five million dues-paying members mm-hmm. uh, and have had for a long time. But even as the NRA has struggled over the last three or four years uh, with internal um, debates and corruption allegations, and uh, you know many of which been going you've on reported on at, but to their yeah, chagrin, which certainly we've covered <laughs> extensively at the reload. Um, even as they've uh, receded in size and power and revenue and and spending and so forth, it does it hasn't coincided with uh, a reduction in. Uh, the influence of gun owners or probably more specifically gun voters Mm -hmm. uh, over that time period. It's, you know, you can look at, for instance, the assault weapons ban, right? The president wants an assault weapons ban. It's what he's called for in the wake of both of these uh, shootings. And now obviously, uh, you know, 19 children being murdered in a shooting that involved an AR-15 could, could change the political landscape on, uh, assault weapon ban at the national level. It's uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. It's much too early to know exactly what will happen. But the Democrats have controlled Congress the, the entire time that the president has, you know, been president, right? And they have not passed an assault weapons. They have not even voted on an assault weapons ban in the House of Representatives. Which you know, anyone who follows DC understands the federal government knows that. Uh, the Senate may be much harder to get things through, but the House, right. uh, it's m- much easier for the controlling party to push through whatever agenda uh, they, they want to. Uh, they have much more 
leeway over how the 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 body that body of Congress works. There's no filibuster the in the House, wouldn't. so the majority party gets what it wants, basically. Yeah, right. Um, you know, uh, the only reason that you wouldn't push a vote on an insolvency ban in the House, controlled by the president's party, is if you don't think that uh, your own members will vote for it, right? Or you don't want to make them vote for it because it's politically inconvenient for them in their upcoming races. So it just gives you some uh, idea. Of, and it's not, it's not because there are very many Democrats left that the NRA has influence with. You know what I mean? It's more because their constituents actually do oppose that sort of policy. And uh, that's the political reality of it. The NRA may be shorthand for gun owners, but it's not the be-all and end-all of uh gun owners representation on the topic yeah so also i mean and i know largely through you um but that gun sales particularly during the pandemic have been robust right but Mm -hmm. for 25 years people tried to make the argument both trial you know the trial lawyers hollywood whatever that gun manufacturers are of similar scale to say big tobacco in the eighties and nineties or the pharmaceutical industry. But, you know, my understanding is, is that the guy, you know, the, the, the gun industry is a healthy industry. I mean, I'm talking about simply as a business model, right? It's like, it's a profitable industry for the most part, but it is not, it is not nearly of this, that sort of fortune 50 kind of thing. Right. I mean, t- tell me about no. like, just the, like how big, is the is the gun industry how much has it grown i mean how how is um you know the idea that you can soak the gun industry to pay for a million trillion different things just always seems like one of these things that people say without actually going and looking up their capitalization or whatever yeah i mean certainly the gun industry is uh you know uh, tens of billions of dollars a year industry but not uh, I mean, what Apple's a, a trillion dollar a year company by itself, you know, right. like it's not to the scale of the tech industry or the uh, auto industry or, or any number of these other major American industries. Um, it certainly is not, uh, you know, uh, mom and pop shops. There are a couple, uh, although there are obviously a lot of mom and pop shops when it comes to gun dealers, but um you know, there are several publicly traded gun companies. You can go and look at uh, Smith and Wesson is one Ruger would be the other one. There's two, there's two major publicly traded, um, American gun manufacturers, which are Ruger and Smith and Wesson. And they have seen, you know, record, uh, sales and profits over the last several years because of the increase in gun ownership in, in the United States, uh, during that time inspired by really a lot of things, the pandemic, uh, chaos, the George Floyd shooting, uh, the react, the riots that followed the shooting, a lot of that stuff drove a lot of mm-hmm. new, uh, new people into to gun stores because that's people buy guns when they're, uh, concerned for their own safety, right? That that's a, the main driver of gun buying in America, uh, today. So, um, you know, self-protection is, is the main reason people give for why they buy guns. But, but yeah, I mean, th- these aren't, you know, there, there's a publicly traded, two publicly traded ammunition manufacturers vista outdoors which makes most of the major brands you've ever heard of like um federal or uh remington or 
um, Spear, CCI, all those brands are under one publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. And then there's Olin Corporation, which makes Winchester ammunition, but the, it's a tiny per percentage of its overall portfolio because it's mainly like a chemical mm -hmm. manufacturer that, and the, the ammo business is tiny compared to their yeah. the rest of their business. So yeah, I mean, as far as comparing it to the pharmaceutical company or um, or yeah, big tobacco or any of those other, it's not nearly that scale. Um I know we're coming up on time, but um, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you in the sort of one-on-one portion, um, uh, we also hear an enormous amount about the gun show loophole. Um, like, I, 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 what well, I know what it is. Um, but what role? So, if you can, but explain it to people, you'll do better than I will. And then, what role has it played in in mass shootings? Because I mean, you hear about it all the time, but it, I. I I keep waiting for someone to say, and he got it at a, through a through the gun show loophole. And has it ever right. happened? Um, uh, it's there. There's one mass shooting I could think of that involved a private sale, which is it. So I guess let's let me uh, start with what, what it is. Yeah, okay. yeah, what it means. So gun show loophole. It's kind of a misnomer. Um, it's a popular term, but what they're actually talking about there is doesn't doesn't have anything to do with gun shows. In particular, you know, people get the impression that, well, we have background checks on gun sales unless you go to a, uh, a gun show or buy it on the internet. And that's not how the system works. The system uh, that we have regulates commercial firearms manufacturing and sale. So if you are in the business of selling firearms, you have to get a federal license uh, in order to do so legally. And so if you have a federal license, a federal firearms license, they call them FFLs. If you're a federal firearms licensee, you have to conduct background checks on uh, non-licensed individuals that you sell guns to. Uh, and it doesn't matter where those sales happen, whether you're making a sale at a gun show or in your gun store or over the internet. Um, it does not matter. What matters is who's involved in the sale. We don't regulate at the federal level um, non-commercial sales of firearms. So used gun sales, basically. Um, so if, if I bought a gun from you, through, it doesn't get, it's not covered. Yeah. Because the way the system works is that it's regulating commercial sales through a licensing scheme. So if you're, if you're not in the commercial side uh, of gun sales, uh, now all new sales of firearms have to go through licensed individuals, uh, to be clear. So this is only, we're only talking about uh, private sales on the secondary market of, of used guns. Uh, and even then you might have to get a license if you're, trying to do it for profit as a business, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, so uh, what they're referring to with gun show loophole are private sales, which can which can occur at gun shows. Uh, you know, if, if you go to a gun show, I mean, every gun show I've ever been to, most of the people selling guns are dealers and mm -hmm. you still have to get a background check and do, go through the whole normal process like you would if you bought it from your local gun store well, what uh, because like a pawn probably, shop because pawn shops have guns right and same thing for pawn shops you know they, they'll pawn shops will have to get licenses uh -huh. to uh to sell firearms to people um but but uh what the complaint is is that the used sales in the secondary market private sales are not required to go through background checks in most states some states have their own laws that say you you have to basically go to a licensed dealer uh, and have them be an intermediary for your sale if you're if you're a private uh, person making a gun sale. 
Uh, and that's that's the policy that uh, most Democrats will will point to in the wake of that and solvents bans. Kind of the same debate for thirty years, as mm. you probably noticed. But uh, that and the I think the reason that they go to it because yeah, it's it's not common for shootings. I think the Dallas police shooter a few years back, the one that they blew up with a robot. If you remember that whole mm-hmm. crazy situation, I believe he bought his gun in a private sale, but I don't remember if he was actually prohibited because the, the, the theory here, the, the problem that people bring up is that uh, if there's no background check, you, you can't know that you're sell- not selling a gun to somebody who can't legally own one. Right. Right. That's the problem. Now you, you can't knowingly sell a gun to somebody, you know, is, is a prohibited person. That's a crime. But, but the idea is, well, if you don't do a background check, how are you going to know? And so that that's the that's the argument, and and the policy um, probably would have no effect on most mass shootings uh, because again, most of them uh, buy their guns from licensed dealers and complete background checks that happened with the Buffalo shooter and the Texas shooter, um, and most shooters Parkland, um, so so forth. But uh, I think the only one I can think of is that Dallas police shooter who bought his gun through a private sale. I don't remember if he would have been prohibited anyway, uh, if he had a criminal record or not beforehand, he may have. Uh, But anyway, the reason they come up, so why are we talking about them a lot in the wake of mass shootings, right? Well, it's it's because they're very popular. The concept polls very well. You hear about this all the time, right? In the media, you get 90 plus percent support for, uh, and they call, this policy is called universal background checks. and so that's why it gets brought up because it's something gun related that is popular. Um, even if it doesn't have a, a direct impact on one of these streams, which is obviously the main critique that you'll often hear as well when somebody brings up universal background checks. But sorry, but like, let's say I don't have like, I don't have a license to carry a gun in Washington, DC. You live in Virginia. Uh, I want to buy a gun from you. Have you broken the law or have I broken the law if I buy the gun from you or if you sell a gun to me? Um, well, so uh, if you if you try to buy a handgun across state lines, that would be illegal uh, under federal law. There's a federal prohibition on the sale of handguns uh, across state lines, uh, even between private parties. Uh, so, you know, this stuff gets kind of complicated. All right, well, right? Let's say we, well, like, I, don't, I, 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 I actually don't know what the, regulations for owning and buying a gun in Virginia are, but in DC, mm-hmm. you still need a license, right? Of some kind to have a gun. No, you don't need a license. Um, oh, there's no that- licensing requirement to own guns in most of the country that there are some States like New Jersey and, uh, Illinois has a firearms owner identification card. That's basically a form of a license uh, uh-huh. to buy guns, but most States don't require a license to buy a gun. They rec- you know, the most States, uh, including Virginia, uh, as long as you pass the federal background check, you can, so that's going to affect now the licensing. Yeah. Uh, you can now, usually licenses are required to carry a gun in mm-hmm. public. Okay. Uh, although increasingly that's, that requirement is being removed in, in most red states now. Um, and that's actually what the Supreme Court case is about. Uh, I don't, I'm sure we don't have time to get into that, but uh, yeah, gun carry I, is definitely regulated from just ownership. I guess what I'm trying to get to is like, with the normal gun crime, normal in quotes, right? But like when we're not talking about mass shooters, we're talking about um, people who use guns to rob liquor stores or whatever. 
if somebody comes around and sells them a gun out of the trunk of their car, um, what what crime has actually been committed there, right? I mean, like, because people keep saying that it's these these illegal guns from out of state. Is it simply because right. they haven't been gone through a background check that makes them illegal guns, or is there something else going on? Um, you know, it obviously very much depends on the circumstance. Like, yeah. So if somebody, let's say somebody bought, um, a bunch of guns and this is a common one you talk, hear about, right? Chicago and, and Indiana, mm-hmm. you, you'll hear about that a lot or Virginia to New York. Um, so somebody buys guns, uh, in Virginia that are not legal to own in New York, or even if they are legal to own in New York, but that they take them up to New York city and then they start selling them to people on the street. Uh, in a back alley somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, well, for one, in New York, it would be illegal because they have universal background checks. But let's say they did it in Philadelphia. They don't have universal background checks in Pennsylvania. Well, if they if they had uh, if they knowingly were selling to people who were prohibited, you know, felons, um, you know, people convicted of domestic violence misdemeanors, that's illegal. Um, I mean, it's obviously hard to perhaps catch somebody doing that. But Mm -hmm. uh, usually what you'll have is uh, somebody will buy, uh, you'll have what's called straw purchases. So this, this trafficker will get other people to buy guns for them Mm -hmm. uh, so that they can take a big collection of guns up somewhere else to sell them uh, for profit on the street to criminals. And then they're doing all this knowingly. Um, and so that's a crime on several levels. Uh, the straw purchase itself, you can't buy a gun for somebody else. Um, unless it's, uh, you know, a gift for a family member, basically you, you, when you fill out that background check, you're attesting that you're the actual buyer of the gun, meaning the gun is for you, not for somebody else. Um, and, uh, that's, that's straw purchasing. And that's how a lot of the the trafficking uh, of firearms uh, when when they charge those people the atf or doj goes after people who are trafficking guns that's one of the tactics they'll use is is charging them for uh you know s- uh, encouraging straw purchases or organizing straw purchases and then and then reselling guns illegally to uh people who are prohibited from owning them uh, but obviously that's a very different problem mm-hmm. than you know mass shootings all right, I just wanted to get that out there. Uh, we've gone long, um, and I brought you in here at short notice, which I really appreciate. I highly recommend to everybody uh, the reload. Um, how can people find it most easily? Yeah, thereload.com. Uh, you know, you can go and sign up for our free newsletter we send out every week. Uh, keeps people on top of what's going on uh, with guns. Just you know, one one email a week, and you'll be better informed. Uh, and then we also have a podcast, the weekly reload podcast where I had uh, David French on last week to talk about red flag laws in more detail. If people want to hear more about that. Well, great. All right. So Steve Gutowski, uh, thank you, my friend for coming on and, uh, hope to talk under a, in a happier news environment sometime in the near future. So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. So, uh, uh, Steve has, uh, left the studio. I know it's a kind of a grim, subject to talk about and um and 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 focusing on guns um is probably in some ways like the maybe the wrong way to go and focusing on the human tragedy and all that i i 
I, I can't talk about that stuff for an hour right now. I'm so horrified by by the shooting. And at the same time, I think it's worth, if you actually want to get things done, it's actually worth understanding the facts on the reality of the situation and not just the, um, the sort of performative, you know, uh, utopian kind of stuff that so often passes um, for informed commentary on cable and elsewhere. Um, and uh, there's going to be no, you want this. There is going to be no, no, you want this as a podcast on this one. I just didn't feel like it was appropriate. Um, and um, uh, uh, there will be a solo podcast. And then next week, the 500th Palooza, which uh, went, um, went remarkably well it was a lot of fun and thanks to everybody who showed up and you'll hear more about that later um but uh thanks so much for listening in and i'll see you next time Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.